in this passage that Tim just read, we have Jesus, Jesus Christ, who is meek, mild, lowly, taking a whip and cracking it. Here is Jesus, who we know on Good Friday is like a lamb before the shearer remaining silent, who is in this moment getting very angry. In this image, we have a man with like thunder in his eyes and anger in his voice as he drove everyone from the temple. And so one question before us is like, so um, is this meek Jesus, this love your enemies Jesus, this turn the other cheek Jesus, like is this Jesus like schizophrenic? Like what, what's going on here? Now, of course, we know that Jesus is perfect. And because we don't know anybody else who is perfect, he's the only one, it is right that we're a little bit thrown off by this, that we're a little bit surprised. Like, Jesus, what's going on here? We probably shouldn't be surprised because we don't know any other perfect people. You know, a lot of times I will, um, I'll hear somebody say like, well, I like to think of God like this, or, you know, I just prefer to think of God like this, right? We, we say these kind of things. Have you, have you said this or heard others say this? And um, usually fill in the blank. It's like, I just prefer to think of God like, you know, a tender father or a loving brother, or I, I just prefer to think of Jesus as the good shepherd or you know, Jesus is kind of like my boyfriend. or. But here's the thing. Like, in a way, it doesn't really matter what I prefer. The question really is, like, who is God really? Who is Jesus really? If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. And while it might feel like cozy and sentimental to prefer certain images of God, those are reductionistic at best if they don't embody the whole of who we see Jesus to be in the scriptures. So when we come to the scriptures, we're encountering the stories of the historic Jesus, the human person, God in the flesh. And so if my preferred images about God, well, I really like to think of God this way, are inconsistent with the Jesus we meet in Scripture, then I have formed an image of God that is in my own image and not who Jesus really is. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, sneaky little, I just want to think about God is love. Like, yes, yes. And so what do we do with this passage? You know, for those of you who are like, I just prefer to think of God this way. Um, here's a question we could consider. Like, why is it, like, why would we treat God different than we treat the rest of reality? Like, think about this simple reality um, that you face all the time. Like, say you are driving to the mountains. You're heading up to Breckenridge, and you're on I-70, and you are driving on the road. And the reality of the road is that up ahead, there is a big, like, curve in the road. 
going to turn left. Now, would you say of that reality, I just prefer to think of this road as steering time. I just, I, these windy things, turn my steering wheel all the time, like, ugh, such a hassle. I just really like to think of this road as straight. I prefer to see this road straight. Obviously not. Nobody does that. What do we do? We see that the road is turning, and though we might not want to, though we may prefer it be straight, what do we do? We, like, conform our likes, our preferences, our desires to the reality of the road. In a sense, you could say we, like, put ourselves and our wants in submission to the reality of what is. So why would we treat God any different? Like, you don't make demands of the road. The road makes demands of you. You conform to the reality of it. That's, like, that's just life. That is how you live and survive and thrive by living in what is real and what is true. And if we're to follow the actual Jesus of Scripture and not some modified version that we've constructed, not some preference or I just really like to think of God as, then it seems to me Jesus just is regularly going to be disturbing us. We will feel the need to submit to a different way than we would have preferred on a regular basis. It might be around comfort. It might be around money. We might bump up against our own personal prejudices and biases and just social understandings of things. If you're following a religion, then you can just follow the God that you make up. And it can stay on your terms of comfort because you've actually formed God in your own image. But if you're following Jesus, you're following a person who actually lived, whom we can learn about in the ancient scriptures and who resides in you by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is never disturbing you, if he is never bothering you, if he never seems to be, like, calling you out of your comfort zone, it's probably worth wondering, am I following the real Jesus? Or am I just following a Jesus of my own making? Made in my own image? So you could just say, like, how do you know if you're the God you're following, how do you know if your God is real or made up? Well, one way is like just to ask, is God constantly challenging your biases and expectations? Because things that are real and true often do. Following Jesus is it's almost like we could view it like it's this invitation to constantly be changing our minds. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's like what it means to be ever conformed into the image of Christ. It's like we're, it's like we're always, right, shifting and changing and being challenged 
to become more like Christ. So, okay, let's look at this passage and just simply ask these three questions. Like, what is Jesus doing? Why is he doing it? And what does it mean for us? What does Jesus mean to teach us by doing it? So what does he do in this passage? Why is he doing it? And what does he mean to teach us by doing it? So first of all, what does he do? Okay, what does he do? He cleanses the temple. So the situation is that in Jerusalem, there is the temple. And, you know, many people think at that time, around maybe 80,000 people lived in Jerusalem, like permanent residents in that city at that time, 80,000. But on the festival days, some estimate that 300, 400, maybe 500,000 people would come from foreign lands, people of God scattered all over, would come to the temple to worship. And part of the system at that time was when they came, they needed to bring an animal sacrifice. So coming from afar, coming from foreign lands, that's just not going to be super easy to like bring your ox, your goat, your dove, whatever along. So something started where when you got there outside of the temple, you could buy an animal sacrifice to take home. Okay, not a bad thing. Started out as a good and actually super helpful thing. Here's what happened though. Over time, something that started as a good thing, a necessary thing, a helpful thing. A couple things happened. One, it moved too close in. It was fine when it was out there on the street happening, but it moved right into the center, right into the middle of what was to be the space and the place of God. So a good thing moved into the center, and in that move, became it was in the wrong place. Okay, that was one thing. The movement of the buying and selling came into the temple. The other thing was the exchanging of money. So people are coming from foreign lands. They need to, you know, exchange money. Like, you know, when you go and you travel internationally, Remember when we used to do that? <laughs> used to do it. That is like salt in the wound comment right there. Um, but, you know, you, you travel internationally and you have to exchange money. And if you do that, you know there's a cost to that. There's a hassle to that. So there was money being exchanged. And over time, what happened was that that system became corrupted. So you have common people, poor people coming from afar, and rich people are getting richer on unfair exchanges of money. Not only did the foreign currency have to be exchanged, but even the Roman currency had to be exchanged with temple currency. So this whole process is like creeping into this actual space that is dedicated for prayer. I mean, you just imagine like here are all these people, the people of God coming to worship God. And now all these barriers are in the way. People of God coming to worship God, and here's all these barriers. Not only that, but like they get into the actual place that is to be dedicated to prayer and to worship. And it is loud and noisy, and it's like a, you can't even hear yourself think, let alone pray. 
just like a bustling bazaar. It's like a busy marketplace. Everybody's buying and selling and animals and all right there in the house of worship, in the place of prayer. And the effect is what Jesus says. You've turned worship into a marketplace. People are coming here to pray, to hear scripture. They can't even hear themselves think. And Jesus says, I must purify the temple of anything that distracts people from the pure and focused worship of God. So in a sense, these, there were, they were not bad things that had come about. They started out as good things, but they didn't belong here. They did not belong in the center. And over time, they became corrupt, both because of their placement and how they moved. These things were actually fine in their own place but they had usurped the place of worship. They had become like too big and in the wrong place. And so Jesus just like had to get them out. Jesus cleanses the temple from anything that gets in the way of this pure, exclusive focus on God. Okay, so that's what he did. He cleansed the temple. Why did he do it? Why did Jesus cleanse the temple? The reason is because of the holiness of God. Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jewish people knew in approaching God, they were approaching a holy God. And they knew that in approaching that holy God, they too needed to be holy, needed to be cleansed, needed to be cleaned. Now, The word holy, it's almost like we could say the word holy has like a major PR problem in our world today. Because when you think of the word holy, if you're anything like me, you probably think of the phrase holier than thou. Okay, holy in scripture, such an interesting word because in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, like the word holy is actually used to describe objects sometimes. Like furniture was said to be holy. Pots were said to be holy. To be holy in scripture is to be set apart from common use for exclusive use in worship. In worship in the tabernacle, in worship in the temple. So anyone or anything that was set apart exclusively for God was said to be holy. Anything, anyone set apart for exclusively to be used by God was said to be holy. So even today, right here, right now, in this room, in your home, someone is holy when they are for God's exclusive use. You are holy when you say, God, use me anywhere you want. I am for you and you alone. I'm not for comfort or security or money or fame or power or friendship or family 
all these other things that creep in, I am for you and you alone, and for you and you alone. It's Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done. That is what it means to be holy, to be purified in holy life. Jesus cleanses the temple because of the holiness of God. It's like Jesus' anger, his fury in this passage, it's like a consuming fire. You can just like see the fire in his eyes. It's a purifying fire. It's like Jesus knows God is holy. To approach God, the people must be holy. And he also knows that holiness and happiness one and the same. They're actually one and the same. And if we had eyes to see, we would see that everything that stands in the way of holiness is actually to our misery. And Jesus can see all this. He's, he's like a purifying fire. It's, he knows that this is what's needed. And so his, he's angry. He's angry there, because there are all these barriers these barriers standing in the way of holiness. He's passionate, like, for the purity of the temple in this story. Because at, at that time, the temple was the place where the people of God and God meet. Now, that's what he did. That's why he did it. Why did he do cleanse the temple? Why did he do it? Holiness of God. Now, what is he trying to teach us? Like, what's in this for us? Well, the scriptures teach if you are a follower of God in the way of Jesus, you are God's temple. You are God's temple. Your body is the place where you and God meet. You are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus is passionate, has zeal for the purity of the temple, the temple of our lives. He wants all the impurities out. He knows that all of these barriers to holiness are actually recipes for misery because holiness and happiness, they're one and the same. So he wants to remove like all the barriers, all the distractions, so that you and I might be in our real lives exclusively holy. Jesus never did any public actions without like trying to teach us something about God. And it's interesting because when the Jewish leaders see this happen in the temple, they're like, hey, wait a minute, table flipper. Why do you have the authority to, like, come in here and do this? And what does Jesus say? He says, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why I have the authority to turn these tables. Take this temple, he says, tear it down, and I will lift it up when? In three days. Scripture says he's talking about his own body. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, like, you believe that you can get to God through this temple system. But I'm the temple. You think you can come in here with all your sacrificial offering system to get to God? 
But I'm telling you, I'm the temple. I'm the priest. I'm the holy sacrifice. I'm the altar. I'm the bread. I'm the wine. Like, I'm the way. And you're thinking it's over here. I love the simple way Eugene Peterson says this. He says, Jesus is the way that God comes to us. That's the incarnation. Jesus is the way we come to God. So Jesus is the way that God is coming to us. And Jesus is also the way that we come to God. It's why the table of communion is the centerpiece of everything that we do when we gather and worship. It's the centrality of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the Eucharist way. It's what we remember. It's what we gather on. I mean, for those of you who, like, grew up in church, um, do, you, do you know why churches are, like, full of such cranky people? <laughs> do, like, do you know why? Um, it's not a lie. Seriously, it's not a lie. Some um, of the most sensitive, most joyless, most... Uh, critical, most sensitive to receiving criticism, people are church people. It's why I'm grateful that many of you do not have a church background because you don't bring that baggage <laughs> to our community. But um, here is why churches are sometimes filled with really cranky people because churches tend to be full of people trying to get to God. Trying to enter trying to get closer to God. And often, they're trying to do that by being good. By being moral. They're trying to work harder to basically say, like, see, I'm good enough. To prove, like, through their merit, through their actions, through their religiosity, I must be worthy of God now. Look at how much I volunteer and worship and pray and give and do all these things. But we don't come to God by doing everything else. That's religion. It is not the gospel of Jesus. Religion says, you know, I'm going to get to God through my own merit. I'll get to God by doing a certain set of right things. The gospel of Jesus says the only way to God is through Christ. It's the only way. Like the only way to get to God is it's actually not to do it all right. It's to do it all wrong. And to face that reality and to be like, oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, when we come to and like a perfect holy God, when we approach a perfect holy God, we actually do know when we, when we approach a real, true, holy God, the reality, we actually do know that we're on our way to hell. And I know that's not very popular from a psychology perspective, but we do. We know it. We feel it. We're like, God is perfect. I am now really aware that I am not. you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Because as I approach God, I, I know that. I see that. I am aware 
In fact, one of the ways you know you're getting close to the real God and not just a Jesus of your own making or a Jesus is my boyfriend kind of version or an American, like, cowboy version is you do actually feel your unworthiness. And Jesus' solution to that feeling is never to say try harder. Jesus' solution to that feeling of unworthiness and like, I want to be near God. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm so aware that I'm unworthy. Because it's Jesus never says try harder. He never says, like, get your act together. He never says, like, put together better, stronger goals. You really should have a better vision for your life. It's not, it's not on you. like the subtle difference between religion and following the real Jesus. The solution that Jesus gives is to say, I'm the only way. And so the only response is to throw myself utterly and completely on the grace and mercy of Jesus over and over and over again. My only response is like, to surrender and to submit, to accept, to believe, to, to allow my, you know, that I'm not, I'm not telling the road to conform. I'm conforming to the road. And the reality is I cannot live the Christian life. I can't. You can't either. And Jesus never asked us to. In fact, Jesus is the only one who can, which is why you read these, you know, passages in Scripture about, you know, it's not I who live anymore, it's Christ living through me. Why? Because he's actually the only one who can live the Christian life. You and I cannot. So it's about dying and allowing, like, the exchanged life. Allowing the indwelling presence of Jesus to live in and through you. Because actually, Jesus has no problem living the Christian life. So, like, just real, like, um, feet to the street. What does this really mean for us? I think it, I think it, it means two things. One, Jesus is a refiner. And that's what we're seeing in this temple story. And also, impurities. They come out through refinement. Jesus is a refiner, and impurities come out through refinement. So Jesus has this zeal that we see in the temple of God, and you are the temple of God. And God's Holy Spirit lives in you. Your life is now the temple of God. And so right now, right this minute, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is consumed. He has zeal. He has passion. Like we see in this story, do you know what he has? He has zeal for you and your life becoming a sanctuary that's like exclusively God's and God's alone. And so that is, you know, Jesus is the refiner and you are the temple and he does have zeal for this. And then secondly, impurities, be it in the temple, then or in our lives, they come out through refinement. Usually refinement comes through a furnace. 
basically, if you were like charting out your life and just saying the big things that have happened in your life, very simply put, the metaphor of a furnace could be the chart. Like you right now either find yourself in the furnace of refinement or maybe you've just recently kind of come out of the furnace of refinement or maybe you're heading into the furnace of refinement. Like this is spiritual formation. And make no mistake, like we're all being formed, right? It's just what are we being formed to? And so the furnace is this place where refinement can take place. The furnace is like this set of circumstances in your life where the impurities can no longer live alongside the pure. It's like the heat of the situation in your life, whatever that is, the heat ramps up and it creates a situation where it is impossible for the gold and the impurities to coexist any longer. They just can't. It pushes them into different directions. So just like for a specific example, let's imagine that you have a job. It's a super good job. It pays you really well. And this job has been amazing. It has allowed you to, you know, it's allowed your love for God and comfort and financial security to coexist for a very long time until this one day when, like, you realize your company is about or your boss has asked you to do something that is just like a confidence killer. You're just like, oh, that created a furnace moment for me, right? Like those can no longer coexist together. It's a furnace moment. And you have to decide between these things. Now, sometimes the furnace is like this really obvious type of a thing, like that scenario, where the impurity is like this obvious sin. But more often than not, we're being refined from these good things that have slowly made their way into the mix. More often than not, when we experience refinement, the refiner's fire, it is good things that have just over time become like ultimate things. They moved from the street, with no problem there, right into the center of the heart of worship. Like, for example... Love for family is a good thing. It's not designed, though, to bear the weight of our full allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. Love of nation is a good thing. It is not designed to bear the weight of our full allegiance. You shall have no other gods before me. Financial stewardship, like all the stuff we've learned from Dave Ramsey, is good. Not meant to be ultimate. You shall have no other gods before me. And so like good things, like financial stewardship, can all of a sudden become like this cloak for Christian greed. And what Jesus does is he like comes along and he disrupts them. And if you've not disrupted yet, it's probably right for me to step back and be like, huh, am I following you yet, Jesus? When you read these stories of just how like countercultural and radical following Jesus was for the early church, you read these stories about like 
Oh my goodness, the people, right? Like, if we are sealed in him and life and lineage from the soil of Bethlehem, the apostles preached, whoa, that sounds intimidating. You know what probably happened? Some of you have all sorts of personal stories, and some of you are on the brink of a personal story. And maybe as a church, we're on the brink of some stories. Is that the the refining of God and the invitation is to trust that actually holiness and happiness are actually the same thing. So if you could see what God could see, if we could just remove our cultural lenses totally, and if we could just see the heart of God, if we could see how we're made, if we could see who God was, we would see, I think we would see, that so very, very much of our misery is because we're still enslaved. Like I am enslaved to my desires and my obsessions. You know what needs purifying? My desires need purifying. My obsessions need purifying. And sometimes the furnace comes and it creates this environment where like love for God and this thing that snuck into the center can't coexist. Do you know what's happening in that moment? If you're in that right now, like God is not trying to burn you, but it is painful because your true self and your false self, the self that you present to the world, the self that you put out there, you know, so that people will think, like, you have your stuff together and you're worthy, that self, you're separated. And that's actually really hard work, but it hurts. It's painful. And if you submit to that work, if you come under that work, if you say, like, God, let your purifying fire have your way in me. You know what? You actually become transformed in love. Like you over time, you become more gracious, more merciful, less anxious. You know what happens over time? You become the wise sages that our world so desperately needs. You do. Because you're no longer clamoring with all these desires and all these obsessions. Do you know what you've become? One thing. I have one thing. This is the only thing I seek. This is the only thing I want. Do you know what the definition of a saint is? The definition of a saint is a person who wills one thing. there's been enough moments in life where it's like, yeah, those don't coexist anymore. And I have a choice to make. And I have to decide. Am I going to keep this idol in my life? Or am I going to lay it down? Am I going to say, I want this temple to be exclusively and only yours, God. And when you do, If you remember, something like gold, something like a beautiful, strong diamond emerges from it. The 
reason in a song. <laughs> Do you remember this one in the 70s? Stay all about you. I'm just not a singer. Do you want to come sing with us tonight? Do you want to hang out? Um, you are holy. In you is pure love with no imperfection. And as we approach you, we say, woe is me. I am a person of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And Jesus, we thank you that you came and you lived this perfect life that we bump up against and we just don't understand. And in each of those interactions, you're inviting us over and over. And we feel it again today, your invitation. And so with you, we just say, not my will, but yours be done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.